Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast Half-Full Editor. Joining me, as always, is my colleague and co-host, David Weidrich. How are you doing, Dave? All right. How are you? Good. Uh, Good? I feel like as the winter progresses, I am ever more in the mood for a dram of scotch whiskey. Um, it is the winter drink par excellence. <laughs> you drink it all year round, but especially now, uh, cold weather it's been a polar vortex in uh, the northeast the last couple of weeks uh, yeah I, i've been breaking out the uh, isla whiskey toddies and uh, and sucking them down it's the only <laughs> thing I, I live in a drafty old house and it's the only thing that fights the draft that's what they were designed for right absolutely well last episode we talked a little bit about the hot toddy and mm-hmm. its origins and then uh, sort of naturally leads into discussion on scotch and um this episode talking about Scotch and Scotch innovations. A little bit later on, we'll have a special guest, David Blackmore from Glen Morangi, calling in all the way from Isla, that tiny island off the west coast of Scotland. I believe he's not just in Isla. I believe he's at Ardbeg. Absolutely. Where the smoky, the smoky really, really gets smoky. Oh, yes. Uh, and, yeah. and and he looks after, obviously, Glen Morangi and Ardbeg, and we'll be talking a little bit about Scotch innovations and, and what they've done. It is definitely one of the, one of the more interesting categories since it's so highly regulated, you know, it's kind of like champagne or some of the other liquor categories. There are very, very specific rules set forth by the Scotch Whiskey Association and have been codified, you know, by law, I guess, by the EU. Yeah, for, 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 for quite some time, too. Oh, yeah, for, for decades and decades. That's right. And I don't think people realize that literally the box for making scotch is very, very small. I mean, it's, you know, it obviously has to be made in Scotland, but they regulate the size of the barrel, what the barrel's made from, you know, absolutely how it's distilled, the proof. I mean, literally almost every possible factor they've looked at and you have only a few choices really, if at all. It's kind of funny because they've managed within those very tight parameters to do quite a bit of innovation over Absolutely. over recent years. But, uh, you know, in a, in a few small fields. Yeah. Obviously, people have been making whiskey in Scotland for a long time, for centuries. The Scottish whiskey industry, as we know it, is sort of a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, well, until, uh, until the 1960s, there was hardly any single malt sold. Yeah. It was all blended scotch, uh, blended whiskey. A lot of those were pretty rich, though. They, were, yeah. they, were, they had sure. a lot of malt in them. There were only a few brands of of uh, malt available, particularly in the U.S., but yeah. there weren't that many more available in Scotland, frankly. And I think that people assume that Scottish people have always drunk single malt scotch. And, no. But it's not, it's actually not the case. And I think we've talked about this a little bit on earlier episodes, but around the 1880s, you have Phylloxera, which was this terrible yeah, little yeah. aphid that eats its way across, you know, European vineyards, you know, which... Including the cognac ones, which was, cognac, was key. Poor, you know, it sort of messes up everything. Yeah. Um, at the time, people really loved drinking cognac. It was in so many of the cocktails, and you've sherry and port, and all of these things are affected or disrupted, mm-hmm. or they're not exactly what they were. So people, especially in London, are, are thirsty, as as, uh, as the case may be. Um, and they started thinking, oh, I've heard that they make whiskey up in Scotland. I mean, it helped that the royal family for a couple generations had had properties up in Scotland that oh, they yeah. really liked. They had Balmoral, which they sure. still have, and and that was a, that was a big uh, part of the royal family's uh, sort of attempt to become English was to colonize Scotland, just <laughs> like the English had done. 
because you know it was a German family right. mostly. Sure. Uh, so uh, that were that was brought over in the in the 18th century. And, and according to lore, they were even drinking. The king was drinking scotch before some of these distilleries were legally licensed oh, yeah. in the Highlands. Uh, George the Fourth was absolutely. right. You know, now most of the distillers are clustered on the different islands or in the Highlands. You know, three four hours away from even Edinburgh or Glasgow. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, that was done because they were hiding from the tax man. You know, a yeah, lot they of were was, up these uh, narrow glens uh, right. on hillsides where they had a really good view. <laughs> right. So if anybody was coming, they could see you miles away and hide everything. As with so many other things we talk about, dodging the tax man and it's increasing profits, you know, <laughs> was really helped kind of create the whole industry. And, and a lot of the things that laws sort of codify came about because they were just trying to dodge the tax. <laughs> yeah, it was ways of shutting down. Uh, you, all right, you have to do it this way right. because that way we can regulate it. Right, exactly. You know, like we can't uh, let you use any kind of still you want because you can make a lot more whiskey in some of them exactly. and uh, not report most of it. Right. <laughs> you know, some of them are much harder to uh, calculate their, their, their output. <laughs> I mean, only up until recently, a tax man lived at each distillery, right? That's I mean, right. The distillery right. paid for a tax man to live there. There are two locks on every spirit safe coming off the Well, the still, whole spirit like every- safe is amazing. In Scotland, the spirits uh, would go and mostly still go into a lock box so you can't taste it as it's coming off the still. Right. Or remove some. Or remove any. Well, right. because that's the same right. thing. You know, right. you, uh, you, you, it, it, every drop has to get locked up out of people's hands and now now there's <laughs> that's no, just funny there's no tax man on on no. premises but because to be honest they're so good at calculating yields and how much mm-hmm. alcohol you report how much grain you bought and they know exactly how much you should have in your barrel and then you pay taxes on obviously any deviation from those numbers right. the tax man will be there uh with their handout ripping apart that's your uh, the theory, warehouse anyway let's I, right. well, I i do wonder if there's not a little bit of wiggling, but that's just I, me. Yeah, I I, I'm skeptical about these things. You know, I remember being in a warehouse with Colin Scott, the master blender from Chivas Regal years ago, and uh-huh. I was saying, uh, oh, some brand had just found the barrel in their warehouse, and he, <laughs> he basically fell over laughing because yeah. he was like, you know, if I lost a bunch of barrels, like, they would be here tomorrow ripping this place apart to see what other barrels we had forgotten about yeah. and weren't paying yeah, yeah. taxes on and, you know, couldn't so, locate. Yeah, so. see if there's an extra floor in between the other yeah, floors. It's, it's not, barrels. you know, yeah. they may, you know, they may not know exactly what a barrel is all yeah. the way in the back of a yeah. warehouse, but they know that it's there and they're yeah. certainly paying taxes on it. But yeah, it's all, it's all, it's in a ledger somewhere. For sure. You know, with all these different single malt distilleries, I mean, almost from the beginning, they were being blended with grain whiskey. That's right. You know, for Aeneas Coffee creates the, you know, what coffee still or patent still or column still, as we call it more generally today, which made a kind of lighter style of whiskey, almost more well, like bourbon, I guess. Or, no, or, lighter or, than or that lighter. even. Well, yeah, yeah, I it guess comes lighter. out at over 90% yeah. alcohol from the still. So there's not a lot of room for flavor compounds no. in that. And then that was mixed with the single malts to kind yeah. of smooth them out and, you know, bring them together. And that's where you get the blends that work. That's, what, that's the beginning of modern blended spirits. Yeah. And now many spirits are all done like that. Uh, most sure. rums that we yeah. get are blends yeah. uh, or just, just call them yeah. still. You know, it, 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 it's interesting. I mean, that becomes Scotch whiskey for century and a half, a century. Yeah. Like, you know, that's if you wanted, if you went into a bar or a store and, restaurant you said i'll take you know scotch on the rocks you would get 
blends. And Nobody was deliberately aging the right. uh, the the malts other than for blends. Right. So if you got them, you got a barrel of raw whiskey right off the still, and you had to <laughs> age it yourself. Right. And uh, that aging yourself uh, in America, it would get aged as long as it took to come over here, and then it would be only drunk in uh, hot scotch, which is uh, you know basically scotch. Whiskey toddies. That was the only way it was it was consumed because uh, it wasn't ready to be drunk straight. It it wasn't considered this right. marvelous nectar that we have now. <laughs> it didn't spend twelve years in, in American oak. And really, we only see the innovations in the modern era coming in. These types of consideration, yeah. the type of barrel, you know, how long it's been aged, where it's been aging, really come in in, in the eighties. Late 70s, 80s, you know, the scotch industry goes through a horrible period where drinkers in America and and really around the world, you know, switch to vodka and other things. And they don't really, they don't want scotch. The distillers have one customer at the time, basically the blenders. The blenders Mm -hmm. say, hey, we're not selling as much. Our warehouses are full. We don't need to buy any this year or we need to buy less. So Plus, we can't charge as much, so we're going to put more grain whiskey in anyway. Right. So, and <laughs> so we don't need as much malt. Yeah. The problem is the malters have nothing else. They have no other plan. There's, they don't even know what to do. So a lot of the distilleries shut down or mothballed. Some never reopened. Some literally mm-hmm. reopened in probably the last five to ten years. And as a result, the ones that tried to stay in business sort of had to reinvent the model. Okay, if the blenders don't want it, then will sell directly to consumers. But to do that, we've got to have some variety. <laughs> right. I remember uh, when the Macallan launched their line of fine oak whiskeys, yeah. which was a radical. There had only been yeah. one Macallan before that, right. really, that that we got in America. Yeah. It was a, aged in sherry oak, and right. it was it was kind of a funky, rich, yeah. rich but not super elegant uh, whiskey. It was kind yeah. of big and outdoorsy. Yeah. And they came out with this uh, fine oak line that was uh, not peated and not sherry aged, aged in bourbon barrels. Absolutely delightful, but the fans didn't know what to do with it at the time. And I think it was one of those things where they looked at their warehouse and because you had this sort of fall off from demand for decades, they had these really older whiskeys in their warehouse and they had all these funky variants because... Yeah, because those weren't their house style, but they were things that they'd been selling to other other distilleries for blending. Or they had used... You know, nobody really cared about the barrels, yeah. so they used whatever barrels they could. Yeah. You know, they had put them in different parts of the warehouse. Well, you they know, had different customers also, you know. Right, exactly. So they suddenly turned around and they had all these funky yeah. things they were creating a market for. Over the years, the Scotch market, drinkers have adapted to this kind of thing, which is interesting. And suddenly you do see them uh, going with the different kinds of wood. And that's one place within the regulations you can be innovative yeah. is... As long as you uh, age something, you can finish it in another barrel, different kind of barrel, so you can take it out of the barrel where it's been aging for exactly. however many years and put it in, say, a rum barrel yeah. and get some of the characteristics of that rum in there just to shift the flavor yeah. a little bit, to add another layer or, or three or four of, of complexity to the flavor. Really, around 20 years ago, you know, you have a few companies that really invest in innovation, mm-hmm. kind of rethink the process and kind of expand the borders of how we make scotch and how we age it. And within the, the boundaries that the Scotch Whiskey Association allows, do things like finishing a second maturation and a second type of barrel mm-hmm. or 
play with the types of grains or where they're grown. Oh, as long as variety. it's malt. Exactly. <laughs> it has exactly. to be malted barley. Exactly. There you can, you know. Exactly. But, but yeah. different strains of malted barley. Oh, absolutely. Different places where they, you know, they've made. Well, they've been exploring terroir in, exactly. uh, in barley, which it does exist to a degree. Yeah. It's debatable how much that affects the whiskey, but it does affect it. Yeah. Uh, you know, once it goes in a barrel, that tends to, uh, to even out some of the, uh, the small wobbliness of, uh, different uh, strains of barley, et cetera. But it does have an effect. Yeah. Everything has an yeah. effect in distilling. For sure. And with that, maybe we'll get our friend David Blackmore on the line. All right. Welcome. A special guest uh, all the way from Scotland, from Isla, David Blackmore, the National Brand Ambassador for Glen Morangi and Ardbeg Single Malt Whiskies. Welcome, Dave. Thanks. It's good to be here. Well, well virtually, of course. <laughs> you guys. We wish we wish we were with you. In, yeah, on, as on a matter Isla. of fact. I wish you were too. It's been a, it's been a great trip and uh, we would have a, have a lot of fun. Let's do that sometime. Absolutely. Well, Dave and I were talking about Scotch innovation and I thought, who better to talk to than you and obviously Glen Morangi has, you know, just released its 10th private mm-hmm. uh, reserve edition, which is, you know, all about innovation. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about the, the newest reserve edition and also some of the things that Glen Morangi has done to change the flavor of, of scotch over the years. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I guess Glen Morangi has been relatively well known, hopefully, at least for, for, for a while now, a couple of decades at least. Oh, at least. For, for really pioneering the, the art and science of extra maturation or finishing in, you know, uh, wine barrels, etc. Um, and that's something that we've really made our own. Uh, and we're still doing that. But, you know, there's, there's much more that excites us that we can be doing and have been doing uh, in terms of experimentation with the, and experimentation just for the sake of it, you know, so what? But it's experimentation for us um, for the sake of trying to discover and create new and interesting flavor combinations. And that, and that is exciting, I think. If you think about the raw ingredients that we have to play with, water, barley, and yeast, um, fairly basic. We're fairly restricted in terms of the legalities of what can and cannot qualify as a Scotch whiskey. And that actually, in some ways, excites us even more because the pressures of sticking to within the rules, but pushing as far as you can against them, have meant to uh, sort of really push our creative um, buttons, I guess. So uh, water, you know, we have experimented with that. Nothing yet come out about that. Uh, but we have experimented in terms of water in the past. Uh, barley, we've experimented in terms of things like Maris Otto barley, with uh, Glamorangi to sale back in the day, one of the previous private editions. And this year, Glamorangi Alta is looking at the other element there, uh, yeast, um, which could seem incredibly boring, yeah. but to uh, you know, wine and spirits geeks, it, I'm sure it's not. And what we did, we, we um, many years ago now, we uh, went down to our own uh, estate, the Cadbill estate around Glamorangi House, uh, when the barley was growing and we took some of the barley and we swabbed the barley to see if we could find any kind of local indigenous yeast strains and we found a lot of course because yeast is everywhere and what we needed to find was uh, yeast varieties that actually would be viable and and ferment 
you know, in the correct pathway to create you know, ethanol, which is important. Um, we narrowed it down to four, and of those, one looks the most promising. So our, our partners at uh, Lalamond um, cultured that up. Uh, and so uh, Glenmorangi Alta, which is this 10th anniversary, uh, 10th release of the private edition, is entirely made from the yeast that we swabbed from the, from the barley fields, the cattle barley fields. You must have done this quite some time ago then. Yes, it was, it was around about 10 years ago. Genuinely a total fluke of timing. By the time that that yeast was cultured up to a quantity that was ready at the distillery, just by chance, that barley had been harvested, dried, processed, and was ready and had come to the distillery. So genuinely, um, that first batch which has made it into Alta, not only is it from the yeast that was cultured from the Cabo barley, but the whiskey was actually made from that self-same barley that they used to come from, which I think is just really amazing. That's indeed. amazing. And I love the idea also that didn't this come from the late, great Michael Jackson, not yes. the singer, the, the whiskey writer who, mm-hmm. who had um, talked to Bill Lumsden, Dr. Bill Lumsden, the mad genius behind Glen Rangy, <laughs> about perhaps like a, a house yeast strain, I guess? Yeah, it's funny. Um, back in the day when Bill Lumsden was first distillery manager as a young lad at Glen Rangy, when he first met Michael Jackson for the first few times, Michael kept mentioning that he had read somewhere that Glenmorangie back, way, way back in the midst of time, had had our own proprietary yeast strain. And, you know, Michael sadly has passed away and whatever, wherever that came from, the knowledge he had has, has gone with him because we tried as we uh, tried as everywhere to, uh, with our company archivist to look for any record of a proprietary yeast strain at Glenmorangie and we can't find any mm. evidence of it at all. Very intriguing that, that Michael seemed to know something there. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and that kind of led Bill Lumsden to be determined to actually bring a proprietary yeast strain back to Glenmorangie yeah. uh, at some point. Now, you mentioned something uh, earlier about uh, innovation in water. Can you uh-huh. tell us anything about that? That's interesting. I don't know if it'll be anything we actually ever release. Um, and I don't think it's really telling it anything too secret either. Bill's mentioned it before. Back in the day, and I'm talking well over 10 years ago now, when Bill was distillery manager, he thought it would be interesting, um, given that Glenmorangie has a pretty unusual water source, we use chemically uh, very mineral-rich hard water, um, and not many Scottish distilleries do that. He thought it would be interesting just to switch one week's one week worth of production of Glenmorangie over to just standard uh, town water uh, mm. that was not mineral rich, mm-hmm. just to see if there'd be any differences. Um, the theory would be that obviously the calcium, magnesium salts, particularly in our Tarlogi spring water, we believe you know it's very similar to the sort of water chemistry of of the water in Burton upon Trent or in Belgium or in Kentucky, I guess. Um, and those minerals are, are are used by the yeast to create a slightly more vigorous fermentation than if they weren't there. So we get this vigorous fermentation, which creates, we think, slightly more fruity floral beer, which translates into a slightly more fruity floral style of new spirit. Um, so let's just see what happens if we if we take that out of the equation. And, you know, real experimentation here, because the answer should be we'll make a less fruity, less delicious mm-hmm. Glenmorangie for yeah. a week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but real experimentation, that's the point. Do it to learn. 
Um, so I don't think this would be anything that we push forward, uh, you know, in a big way. But we've done those experiments. And did did it come out? You know, I haven't actually ever tasted it myself, and Bill's very coy about uh, talking about it. Okay, but, uh, you'll have to ask him that yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because it's super delicious, and he's right. saving it all for himself. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> <laughs> Most of these experiments, I mean, started, what, 10, 15, 20 years yeah. ago? I mean, really. Some of them longer, yeah. Like, you know, playing yeah. with water and yeast and barley and barrels. And, and you guys were sort of really just a few other people kind of ahead of the whole industry. Yeah. Do you have any idea of, like, what the next big gotch innovation will be or, or where the industry will go? Will everybody start doing their own yeast strains? <laughs> well, you know, there's been a lot of chatter in the industry about yeast, that's for sure. Um, it's obviously something that I think is on the horizon yeah. uh, in the industry. Um, but I don't think um, finishing is going away. Um, and I think that's good because the best, the best of finishes have created a, a, a a level of interest and complexity in the, in the flavor profile of Scotch whiskey that arguably, you know, think about it, Glamorangie um, 63 vintage, distilled in 63, aged until 85 in American oak, and at that point intentionally finished for two years in ex-sherry casks and released in 87. As far as we are aware, that is, in, certainly in the modern era, the first time a, a whiskey was intentionally finished mm. and then intentionally um, when it was released, we were out there talking about the benefits of those second, secondary uh, two years. Yeah. Um, and, and you look at right through to um, things like Whistlepig and such like. Now, all across the U.S., across the world, Cavalan, um, finishing is become has become almost uh, a, a normal thing. And when it's done well, that's great, you know. And it's it, arguably it's one of the things that re-energize the, the, the whiskey industry, certainly from Scot- Scottish perspective. Uh, and brought new people in and said, well, there can be interesting complexity in single malt. It's, it's not just, you know, Heather and Tartan and how old is it? <laughs> more to it than that. It's one of these things where I think every time we've kind of maxed out on, you know, new ways to innovate for Scotch, Dr. Bill or others comes up with some other variable that I've never really thought about. Bill and I years ago went down to the Ozarks because he only wanted wood from, I think, the shady side of, right? right, he, wanted, right he was right. very concerned with the grain, like, you yep. know, how tightness of the grain would affect the whiskey. And that was, you know, something that was crazy because it's it's not something that anybody really talks about or thinks about. And, you know, you're, you're cutting down trees on one side. They have to be marked all the way through mm-hmm. the coopering process. Once yep. they hold American whiskey, they have to be marked separately. And then finally they get to you maybe 10 years afterwards. Yep. But, Absolutely. Um, and that was experimentation done way back, which fed into in the early days things like Glenmorangie Stella 13 in some respects, yeah. Glenmorangie Artisan Cask, that was mm-hmm. it. And then, of course, more recently into the two iterations of Astar, and the whole idea is, yeah, looking for tight-grained, slow-growth American white oak. And it's called tight-grained because when you cut the tree down and look at the rings to the human eye, you're tighter together. But actually, what you've done is cut down a tree that contains a higher percentage of spring growth than normal because you've minimized the amount of summer growth mm-hmm. in each of those rings. That's why they're tighter together. Spring growth is more microscopically porous. So even though it's tight-grained oak, 
it is at the microscopic level more porous and more spongy so it soaks up more spirit it in drinks more spirit and hopefully therefore you maximize the chances of that spirit taking the goodness out of the wood amazing scotch whiskey almost in the 19th century always used or not always largely used american oak staves for their barrels but there were some people using baltic oak i'm curious if you've ever uh, looked into that and uh, you know, gotten oak from Lithuania and places like that to try aging in Baltic oak casks? Not to my knowledge, but then again, um, you know, Bill doesn't let me in on all of it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. I know that um, for our beg, we have used oak um, from the Black Sea uh, region of the former, former Republic of Georgia. Okay. Uh, former Soviet Republic of Georgia. Um, so we have played with that. I am aware of a couple of more, a couple of other uh, wood experiments currently uh, ongoing that um, I'd like to keep my job. I can tell you this as well of sort of brainstorming lists of things that we could do that I know we're currently doing. I would say just from my knowledge, there's at least 20 wow. um, experiments ongoing yeah. right now. Uh, interesting. And I mean, you need that because obviously every year, for the last decade, you've been releasing a private edition as well as some yeah. other special editions. And, and I guess in order to keep that streak alive, you must have. I mean, is there ever pressure to, like, keep coming up with stuff or pressure that these things won't be ready, you know, at the right time for, you know, mm. for the releases? Or That's where Bill's experience in the industry comes in. He's just amazing at being able to have a feeling for timescale for things. I think most of the pressure to keep coming up with new things is, is self-imposed from Bill and, you know, and, and that culture thankfully pervades the whole team. We're all delighted to be constantly trying to think of new things and we're encouraged to come and meet with Bill. A white piece of paper or lots of post-it notes stuck on a wall. Um, <laughs> that, that happens, you know, and it's the, some of the most mm -hmm. amazing days of my job are being allowed into that and, and to partake in that. It's amazing. Do you think that we'll ever reach a point where we've tried everything, or does that not exist? I fear for that. I hope we don't, <laughs> you know, um, because the creative uh, process is, is what's fun about it, or yeah. always yeah. thinking of new things. It, it's certainly getting harder because yeah, a lot of things have been done, but um, there's lots that haven't been done. I hope we never get to that point because it would get boring, and I hope we don't get to that point because if we have, then we know everything about whiskey at that point. It becomes a kind of um, ticking boxes thing. I hope that never happens. I hope that's long in the future, at least. Yeah, seriously. I think we have many good years of whiskey making and whiskey drinking uh, ahead of us, hopefully. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Scotland. We appreciate it. Hope to see you over glasses of whiskey soon. Absolutely. Cheers. Safe travels. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Cheers from Isla. I think we should go drink some whiskey now. I think we should definitely drink whiskey. I'm always up for no, that. No, now. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Now. Right now. It's it's, it's after 5 o'clock somewhere in the world. Um, uh, it's after 5 o'clock in my brain. Exactly. So that's, that's good enough for me. Yeah. So uh, looking forward to more editions of Life Behind Bars. Talk soon. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.